for today, we are going to be in John 14, verses 15 through 27. It says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Oh, I'm sorry, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Thank you. Uh, well, good evening slash morning, Watermark. Um, I'm glad to be back with you. It feels kind of odd for me because the last time I preached at Watermark, it was the last live service before we started coming back together on Thursday night recordings. Uh, so it's kind of great to be back, but it's also just so different. And I feel like if there's any slogan for 2020, that's it, right? It's terrible and different. Uh, maybe not great. I don't know why I said great on that one. But uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that we're going to be having this message together. Um, when I was thinking about what to kind of preach about for you and to, what things that have been kind of hitting me, you know, I go back to this passage in John chapter 14, because in this passage, we actually get this kind of section, uh, what's often called Jesus' farewell, and it's a few chapters of Jesus preparing his uh, disciples and his apostles on what's to come. And it's almost as if he was kind of giving his own last words to them. Like, hey, things are about to happen. Things are going on. And here are some things that I really need you to remember after all of this time together. Here are some important words. And I feel like there's something really special about the fact that Jesus would take time and John would take time to record these kind of farewell messages, these, these almost things to remember in light of what was to come. And particularly this passage is a really interesting one because I grew up uh, in a very Pentecostal church. Um, it was not very odd for my dad to be asked the question if he was a snake handler and a poison drinker which if you know anything about Pentecostal churches, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But the answer was thankfully no. Uh, he didn't do those things, and neither did any of the Pentecostal churches I grew up in. But if there's one thing that, that Pentecostal churches really cared about, it was talking about who is the Spirit, 
what does the Spirit do, and what's the point of the Spirit, or the role of the Spirit in the lives of Christians? And John chapter 14 has a really beautiful but odd argument. Jesus is making a strange argument that sometimes we fail to recognize because we fail to understand what this idea of the Spirit is for us. And so, one of the other things that I wanted to do in this passage as well is, is bring out this idea of something that I feel like we all need in light of 2020, which is just a bit of peace. Uh, it seems like such a strange year, and there can be a lot of turmoil. We've just gone through a political season. Uh, we just we, So we went through that kind of political turmoil. We went through, uh, if you were with family on Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving turmoil uh, with family. It just feels like there is a need for peace for us. And so in John chapter 14, we really get a message of peace that might be a bit different than we first imagined. Uh, I'm going to have to ask my friend doing the slides uh, with all the practice and making sure everything worked beforehand. My phone decided it didn't want to work. So we can go to the next slide and you can just go to the end. I had all these bad animations and there they are. Um, so let's talk about a little bit first to get into John chapter 14, Jesus's message in John. And so, you know, in the Gospels, we find that each of the Gospel writers write unique messages uh, to a certain audience. And in John, we get so much more of Jesus' speeches, his discussions, his talks. We can call them sermons. We get more of Jesus actually teaching his disciples than we do the miracles or the actions of Jesus. But one of the things that we get early on, and one of those passages that like everyone knows growing up is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, and so on and so forth. But the one part of John 3.16 that we often think about is this last part about eternal life. Eternal life. And in John, we find this phrase, eternal life, a few times. We see that John is recording this idea from Jesus about eternal life. The problem for us is we've kind of been, we've kind of been enculturated by the church in what we think eternal life actually is. And, and I really like the community like Watermark that uh, is really thoughtful and mindful about these things. So for some, this is going to be old hat, and for others, this will be new. But in, in the time of Jesus, this idea of eternal life, this idea of what we might call heaven, is quite different than what we hear in our kind of popular culture, popular church messages today. So much so that oftentimes when we think about eternal life or we think about something like heaven, most of us have this grand picture of this idea that once we die or once Jesus returns, that our souls are going to leave somewhere and they're going to go somewhere else and it's going to exist forever. And I don't know about you, but growing up when you know I was like three or four I, don't, I guess I had nothing better to do, but I pondered on how long eternity was for, and I would just get massive headaches. Like, I would just be trying to understand. I was trying to cope how long eternity was, and I get it. I was a strange four-year-old, but it just never worked for me. Um, but also, I think that's because I had the wrong picture of what Jesus was saying when he was talking about living eternal. You see, the problem is we take eternal life 
And we try to make it mean that we're going to go to heaven and everything's going to be wonderful and grand and everything's going to be perfect in heaven. But that idea of our soul or an idea of the soul leaving the body and going somewhere else was actually an ancient heresy. It was from a group called the Gnostics. And this group had this idea. They had this idea that if, if this world was so bad, if there was so much evil in this world, there was really only one solution for, for the evil, for all the wrongness. And it wasn't that God's going to restore it. It was rather that we were going to be taken away from it, that we were going to go somewhere else. And so the Gnostics had this, what's called a dualism. They had a body-soul dualism that said that the body was bad and the soul was good. And when we died, our soul was just going to go somewhere else and our body would be left behind. Now, definitely as a kid, I grew up thinking that very thing, right? I had these ideas that when I was going to die, I was just going to go to heaven and I could look down on family and friends from heaven and silently judge them for everything wrong they were doing, right? I mean, again, that was the perception I had when my grandfather passed away. I was even more afraid to sin because I thought my grandfather could see me. Like, it was kind of ironic. Like, I should have realized that God could see me and yet I was more concerned about my grandpa, I'm not sure where that came from as a kid, but it was a really big issue for me. Um, but we, we have this idea from Gnosticism that would actually say that we leave this place and we go somewhere else. And in the first century, Paul and John and many of our writers are fighting against this notion that our soul was going to go somewhere else and our body was going to remain. And the reason for that is because it came from the wrong idea of what God wants for the world, what God wants for ourselves, what God wants for our bodies, uh, what God is actually active in trying to do within the world today. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, eternal life, he's not meaning that if you follow him, you're going to get to go to heaven and live forever. The phrase eternal life for Jesus had much more to do with an idea of the age to come. He, he, we can almost kind of think about it as rather than life eternal or eternal life as this idea of the age that is to come, that we will have a participation in the age that is to come. And Jesus was very interested in this idea. This was, this was a beautiful concept of what God was at work and doing within the world through the person of Christ, what Jesus was actually at work and doing. So if you hit the next slide for me, man, we're going to talk a little bit about the age to come. Because Jesus had a twofold mentality about what the age to come was. The age to come was not just simply uh, something that was out there that we're all going to get to at some point. There is a part of that, and we call that part the not yet. There is a part of the understanding that the world still has to go through restoration, that as the book of Revelation talks about, that God is going to redeem all of creation, restore all of creation. He's going to make it new once more. And so when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's, he's envisioning this thing called the not yet, this time period in which Christ returned, this really fancy, fun Greek word, parousia, this idea of the return of Christ. When Christ returns and sets everything back to right. When he returns everything the way that it was meant to be and the way that we just happened to muck it all up. 
But the other idea, the other half of this idea of the age to come was the very thing that was happening in the here and now in the time of Christ. Is that actually that kingdom, that idea, that reality of the kingdom of God was already at work through the person of Jesus and what he was doing in the earth. So the age to come was both something that was actually physically and maybe even spatially and through time coming, but it was also something that was immediate for them in that time. So when Jesus talks about this idea of eternal life, he's got this, he's got this twofold mentality. It's something that's coming and something that's already here. We get visions and pictures of it. We get to see and participate in the kingdom of God that is here while recognizing that there's still something further to come. There's still something else that we're going to be able to participate and partake in. And that's really where we begin with John chapter 14. We keep this idea in our head when we jump into John chapter 14. That Jesus is giving this vision to his disciples. He's reminding them yet again of this, this age to come, this life eternal, and their part in that life. What they're supposed to do within that. And so if you'll hit the next slide for me. He starts this passage. This passage is a really kind of interesting start because he really does start just with this simple idea, if you love me, keep my commands. And for the disciples who have been following Jesus for a long time, those, those commands were robust. Those commands were, were sometimes in line with the Torah. Sometimes they were changing and, and, and shifting things. But a lot of these commands had to do with how the disciples enacted within the world. Taking care of the poor, taking care of the homeless, taking care of the orphan and the widow, how they treated people, how they engaged with community, what they were trying to do in at work within the world. But then Jesus gives this idea, if you love me, follow my commands. And then he gives this and. And he's going to do something. As we do that, as we love Christ and follow his commands, there is something that is to come, something that Christ is going to pour out within the world. And that thing that, that Jesus is talking about in this moment is the Spirit. He's talking about this idea that if you love me and follow my commands, then something is going to happen that is going to radically change the way in which God is at work within the world. But this argument would have been a really vastly complicated argument, especially for a bunch of Jewish people who would be hearing about the idea of the Holy Spirit or just the Spirit of God. Because in ancient times, for the Israelites well before Christ the Spirit of God was very rarely mentioned, and when it was mentioned, it was primarily mentioned in one place, the temple. The Spirit of God rested within the temple. That was where God resided. In fact, sometimes the idea of the temple was like the footstool of God, the place where God entered in into the world. If you think back at all, if, if you know the story uh, even if you don't, there's this idea from 
the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that when the Israelites had left Egypt and they had, they had gone through their exodus, God was leading the people in very physical ways. God would lead the people through a cloud by day and a fire by night. And this coalesced around the tabernacle, this kind of proto prototype uh, temple that was going to be built, that this was actually the physical representation of God within the world. And the Israelites took that as the idea of where do they meet with God? Where is God actually at work? Israel, the land mass of Israel, was thought of as a special place because this is where God actually resided. This is the place that God rested. This is the place that people could interact with God was through the temple. And yet Jesus is going to make a different argument about what he is to do. Jesus makes an argument that he is going to give them that spirit. That he's going to do something radical and different. I like this season that we're in. You know, oftentimes if you come from liturgical church spaces, this is the part of the liturgical calendar that we call Advent. This waiting expectation of the birth of Christ, the season of Advent. And, and while last Sunday uh, was technically the start of Advent, this Sunday, the second Sunday of Advent, is usually in liturgical spaces a teaching on John the Baptist. And in John the Baptist, uh, he makes this statement about Jesus himself. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John declares this. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with fire, uh, sorry, with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist made a proclamation about who the person of Jesus was going to be. Jesus was going to do something unique within the world. Jesus was not just going to baptize them for cleansing, for repentance of sins, but Jesus was about to shift the whole way the world worked and thought about God. Because the, the Spirit was no longer, as John was already envisioning it, the Spirit no longer was just going to rest just in the temple but all people could be baptized into the Spirit. That the Spirit of God was going to be with people, not a place. The Spirit of God was going to be with people, not at a building. And this gives us this picture of, of a Jesus who is the Spirit baptizer, or the baptizer of the Spirit. This is going to be a radical proclamation for who Jesus is. Often we think about Jesus, and we think about Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and these things that Jesus very much is. But Jesus, even more so, is the baptizer in the Spirit. Jesus is radically changing the way in which people can encounter God and the way in which God is working within the world by pouring out the Spirit. In John chapter 14, the beginning of this conversation really starts with, if you love me, follow my commands, and 
I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to give you this Holy Spirit. And there is something. The word that Jesus uses in this idea of the Spirit is a Greek word that's parakletos. And all it really means is something like advocate or comforter or guide. Jesus is making this proclamation to his disciples whom he's about to leave through being crucified and eventually being resurrected and, as we understand this phrase, being taken up into the clouds, going back to be with the Father. Jesus makes this proclamation. I'm going to do something even after that that's radically going to change the way the world thinks about God and how we engage with God within the world. And Jesus is most likely probably thinking about a, a passage in Ezekiel. Because these are prophecies. This idea of who Jesus was going to be was, was prophetic kind of proclamations of the idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And in Ezekiel chapter uh, 36, uh, verse 27, it says this, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's odd to think that what God was at work in doing was to not be confined to a temple or even confined to a physical landmass. That God was working and engaging all of creation through people. And Jesus makes this proclamation again that if you follow his commands, if you follow these things, if we actually loved Christ, we're not going to be left on our own, that the Spirit is going to be there with and through what we're doing within the world. And John, uh, and sorry, Jesus in John gives God four different things that the Spirit's going to be for us. And so if you can hit that next slide. Uh, he kind of gives four distinct things that he mentions about the Spirit. Uh, the first one is that the Spirit is understood as the Spirit of truth. A recognition of what the Spirit was supposed to be for the people. An idea of truth. Jesus has already actually proclaimed himself as the truth in the, in the Gospel of John. When he makes this claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet this Spirit of truth is the Spirit of God. This is an argument saying that the same Spirit that's going to be sent to you is the same Spirit of God. The same Spirit of Christ. The second thing that Jesus is going to say in, in verse chapter 17 is this idea of knowing the Spirit and being known by God. Knowing is, you know, back in the kind of the Old Testament, it was like he knew his wife, right? And you just kind of had to get the understanding, the idea, right? Knowing uh, deeply, intimately. Um, but here, this knowing kind of carries a bit of that same connotation. It's a relational knowing. It's not knowing in the sense of having a head knowledge about something, but a knowing that is a relational knowledge, one in which they would know the Spirit because they would be in relationship to the Spirit and actually what the Spirit was doing within the world. And so this advocate, this parakletos, this thing that Jesus was going to send them was the same Spirit of truth that Jesus proclaimed of himself was something to be known and to be in relationship with. The third thing 
that he says in verse 18 is he talks about this idea of that the disciples and the apostles weren't going to be abandoned. They weren't going to be orphaned. And, and so in some sense, Jesus' argument about who the Spirit is, it's the spirit of adoption into a family. This is going to be radically important for the disciples and the apostles who are about to go through not just the tribulation of Jesus' crucifixion, but also the persecution that all the apostles go through, that all the disciples go through, and at first spreading the, the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what God is doing within the world. And so Jesus makes this declaration that the spirit is going to be a spirit of adoption, one that's going to bring them into that family of God and won't leave. And the last thing, the thing that we're really going to get onto is the spirit being the spirit of peace. That there is something about the spirit that brings a peace. Um, in our next slide, we're going to talk about a real quick logical argument. Yay, logic. In uh, verse 20, before we get to this end, uh, and this idea on peace. In verse 20, Jesus says, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And this argument at first seems kind of circular, and if you kind of keep going with the slides a little bit, you'll see a fun little triangle that I made. Um, of that actual discussion, Jesus is making a proclamation about who he is in a unique way. Jesus starts off by saying, I am in the Father. This, isn't, this wouldn't have been the, the newest proclamation that Jesus has made, talking about how he and the Father are one. But what's going to be unique about what Jesus is doing is here is he's making this claim that if he's in the Father, they are going to be in him. The apostles and the disciples are going to be in Jesus. They're going to be in this relational positioning, this actually being one with Christ. And he makes a reciprocal claim. If you are in me, then I am also in you. What Jesus doesn't have to say, and the point here, is this kind of last little bit of the triangle. That this goes all the way back to the beginning. If we're in Christ and Christ is in us, then we are also in the Father. The relationship that God has with humanity is being instituted in the person of Christ and poured out through the Spirit. This relationship starts by the Spirit, this very Spirit that Jesus is going to pour out. So we get this argument, and, and the last thing that Jesus is really doing in this larger argument before he gets on to peace is he's making a claim about who he is as being God. Because no one else can pour out the Spirit of God. No one else can baptize in the Spirit other than God himself. There's a lot of times that I hear, especially uh, working as a professor and teaching theology, there's a lot of times I hear people say, oh, you know, Jesus never really directly says that he's God. Jesus never comes out and says, I'm God. But if we actually learn the ancient arguments, if we learn the way in which Jesus was engaging with the culture and the beliefs in his time, Jesus makes pretty staunch and drastic arguments. Jesus makes claims to his divinity 
by this claim of pouring out the Spirit, that if he can pour out the Spirit, then he must be God. This is an even stronger claim to Jesus' divinity than his resurrection. His resurrection is done by God. But in pouring out the Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer of the Spirit. Jesus is the one sending the Spirit. What we get here in the last of that logical argument is this idea. And in verse 25, uh, well, actually, yeah, in verse 25, he says this, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, back to the Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Right before Jesus makes the argument of the peace, I love how John points it out. Um, in, in the reading that we actually just read, Judas uh, asks a question and John feels the need, of course, to actually be like, hey, this isn't that other Judas that we don't talk about anymore, right? Like not Judas Iscariot, the other good Judas that was one of the apostles. And Judas makes this question, why won't you just show yourself to the whole world? Why won't you just do this? Paraphrasing here quite a bit, but Judas is asking a sincere question and asking this moment of, if you are God, which Judas, I'm sure, proclaims, then you can just do this. You can just show the whole world yourself. And Jesus goes on to to keep on with the argument that he was making, if you love me, follow my command. Jesus is trying to help the apostles and the disciples recognize this pivotal reality about who we are as people who follow Christ. This this picture of being made into the image of God. That actually the mission, the thing that God wants to do, the thing that God is at work in doing within the world is something that he wants us to participate in. It's not something he's trying to help us escape from. Jesus responds to Judas with again the argument of, if you love me, follow my command. By doing that, by following the command of Jesus, it's then that the world gets to see who God is. If following actually what Jesus proclaims to us, we we then show the world who God is through the way in which we engage with the world by following the commands of Jesus. But it's really particular that he's going to end with this idea of peace. Because if we're honest, how we engage with the world, it seems to be a lot of being at odds. It seems as if the farther we try to follow the commands of Christ, the more we can find ourselves at odds with people. Sometimes with our own people. Sometimes with our own family. Sometimes within the church itself, the farther we try to follow the commands of Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he's making a very, uh, very enculturated argument. He makes this claim about the kind of peace that he gives. 
And he, and he calls it the peace of this world. And so if we go to the next slide and just kind of go through, uh, one more, please. You're killing it. Thank you. Uh, is this thing called the Pax Romana. The culture, uh, Rome at the time had its understanding of how it could spread peace into the world. And it was called the Pax Romana. It exists uh, between the time of Augustus Caesar and Marcus Aurelius. It's kind of the time period in which the peace of Rome was considered to be active. And the peace of Rome was the argument of the world at the time. That peace really comes in two distinct ways. And it's the way in which the Roman Empire tried to establish peace within the world. The Roman Empire established peace primarily through military strength and economic power. He who has the biggest military can control everything. The person with the biggest bank account can take care of anything they need to take care of. And this is how Rome existed. Rome would, spe- would spread the gospel of Rome. The good news of Rome it was also its own gospel. It would spread the gospel of Rome to cities as it expanded through Europe and expanded uh, through quite a few different places. And they would proclaim this message. If, if they, they marched upon a city-state, they would give them the message, if you surrender to us, Look at this large military we have. Look at how amazing this military is. Nothing ever stops this military. So if you just surrender to us, and then you just pay us, you'll have peace. In fact, Rome was pretty smart about it. Rome would actually offer this thing to these city-states. They would say, look, we will not destroy you. We'll even let you have your own religion. We'll let you have your own practices. You don't even have to change your own kind of culture. All you have to do is let our military have, let us have some military in your city and also pay us tribute and we'll leave you alone. We'll give you peace. You'll be one of ours. Everything will be great. And this is the kind of argument that Jesus is working against. Jesus is saying the kind of peace that comes through the kingdom of God does not work the same way that the peace of Rome works. The way in which God is working to establish peace within the world has little to do with economic power and military strength. That's the peace of Rome. That's quite literally what Jesus says, the peace of this world I do not give you. Rather, the peace that Jesus is going to be talking about, the the peace that Jesus is alluding to that comes through being in the Spirit, is a peace that actually looks paradoxical. It's a peace that says, uh, when we do things that would typically, when we think that they would give us peace, they actually don't. But when when we actually do the things that would seem as if they shouldn't give us peace, they will. If we think about especially these two things with military, oftentimes, especially in our political world, in our over-politicized world, one of the biggest arguments that we often hear in political ads through political people are about having a strong military. You will be safe if you vote for me. I'll make the military better if you vote for me. You'll be safer if you vote for me. 
there's so much in which the way that we talk about peace, the Pax Romana seems to be alive today in our desire to be safe through military strength. In the same sense that goes with money as well, a lot of times we can have this picture and understanding of money that if we just had enough money, everything would be okay. So let me try to find more money. I'll finally be at peace when my bank account says this. I'll finally feel good when I make this much money a year. I'll finally feel okay when I can retire and know that everything's going to be okay. I don't want to give to those places because if I give, I'll run out of money. The idea of peace for economic, uh, in, in terms of economics, really isn't about whether or not we have money. It's about how we prioritize and think about our money. In the kingdom of heaven, in Revelation, we get this picture, and oftentimes there's this picture that's taught very literally. We hear about this uh, in Revelation, at the end, about a new Jerusalem that comes out of the sky. And if you've heard it before, you've maybe heard some things like there's going to be really big gates, really big walls. The, the sidewalks are going to be made of gold. Like everything is nice and bright and shiny. All the beautiful things that we think have a lot of worth are going to be the building materials. You know, things like the gates are never going to be shut and a lot of times we hear that kind of idea of what heaven's going to be like, and we're like, oh, I can't wait to go. I can't wait to be this like really beautiful place. But we miss that that picture is really a picture. It's a metaphor. It's trying to paint something about what the kingdom, what that not yet that Jesus talks about is really going to be. The idea of heaven being having streets made of gold isn't so much about the fact that we just get to walk on gold and yay, look at us. It's the idea that the very thing that people thought mattered was the very thing we would walk on. It's worthless. The economy of the kingdom of God is flipped on its heels. The thing that we try to find peace in, having money, we no longer have to worry about. Worrying about protection, worrying about military strength, worrying about this kind of domination is not going to be an issue in the new Jerusalem. The gates are never going to be shut. What good are gates to a city wall if they're never shut? Anyone can walk in and anyone can walk out. There is no need to worry about military and economy. Jesus is giving this picture when he talks about the peace that he gives to the world. The peace isn't the way that we think peace should work. In fact, peace works exactly opposite. Peace comes through the Spirit when we follow the commands of Jesus. And oftentimes those commands seem to be the very things that we think won't bring us peace taking care of others when they're in need, not fighting back when we feel as if we should. Jesus, Jesus is so brilliant in the way that he makes his argument. He's literally making this argument right before he goes to do the most paradoxical thing ever and die. 
Jesus is giving this argument that the peace that he gives comes in, even in light of his own crucifixion. He doesn't just say, here's where peace comes from. He actually enacts that peace into the world. He's not just telling us to lay down our desires for peace and protection in the way that the world would give. He himself does it for us as that example. The peace that the Spirit gives, the peace that we get by actually existing and participating in the Spirit, as much as I want to be like, hey, here's a beautiful Christmas message about everything is going to be perfect and everything is going to be wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, the Scripture doesn't necessarily always help us in that way. And sometimes Scripture really actually points us to this picture that peace is paradoxical, that peace is active. Peace is something that we enact. We do it by following the commands of Jesus. We do it by actually participating with what God is already at work and doing within the world. A lot of times we can sit back and we can just proclaim, we want peace. We just kind of want everything to be okay. If we could just get rid of some people in our life, if we could just get our bank account enough, if we can just get this political leader in charge, everything's going to be okay. And yet Jesus' message to his disciples comes in the reality, if you love me, follow my commands, and I will give you the Spirit. And with the Spirit comes peace. It's a tough message, but a beautiful one. As, as much of Scripture is, it's a tough message, but it's a beautiful one. It's one that pushes us further into the understanding that the farther we go into God, the more we find rest but it's an action, it's an active reality. One of the beautiful things about Jesus in his, in his going off to be crucified, and that we get this picture of Jesus, is Jesus in the garden who is, who is crying out to God about letting the cup, letting the responsibility of crucifixion be taken from him. But one of the most beautiful words from Jesus is that nevertheless, Nevertheless, your will be done. Nevertheless, what you would have. Jesus, in the face of anxiety, in the face of not having peace, looks at it and says, nevertheless. Because as Jesus preaches these things, Jesus practices these things. Peace comes in paradoxical ways. What I want to do is pray and pray for us that we learn to have that peace. A peace that later on in the New Testament we hear that's said, that's said to pass all understanding. A peace that goes beyond the way in which we can even imagine how it works because it doesn't seem like it should work. And I, and I want to pray for us that we, especially in a season where we're coming out of a lot of political turmoil, we might even still be in political turmoil where we're into a holiday season, where we're still dealing with the turmoil of COVID-19 and everything that happens with that, that there's a reality in which peace is there in the participation of what God is doing within the world. Oftentimes we don't find peace, not because we're not looking for it, but because we're looking in the wrong places. We're trying to manufacture our own peace instead of resting in the peace that comes with following the commands of Christ. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to pray together our collect prayer, and we'll go in peace. God, we thank you for uh, 
a time to spend together. We thank you for what you are already in and doing within the world. And we pray that through these seasons, we learn to participate in what you're doing and following your commands and finding the peace that passes our understanding as we work towards loving you and loving people and engaging in our communities and our world. We love you and we're thankful even in the hard times for this reality that we can engage with who you are and that the spirit is there for us and the spirit is there working through us and with us for what you have. I pray that even in a season of, of political unrest and with pandemics and going into a new year, that we learn to find that peace that passes understanding by finding and yielding to what you're doing through the Spirit. We love you in your name. Amen. Let's pray this prayer together uh, on our screen. Next slide. Maybe two more slides, I think. Should be there. All right. The collect prayer. If you'd pray this with me uh, before we go in peace. Father God, who is triune and still one, let us learn from your unity during our division. May we come together for goodness and do as you have called us to do, to act justly, love mercifully, and walk humbly with you through creation. Go in peace.